Well, good morning. Uh, again, my name is Robert. I'm the lead pastor here, and I uh, want to welcome you. Uh, we are spending last Sunday and this Sunday preparing for the sermon series that will begin next week called Remembrance, and it's going to be a series that goes through the book of Deuteronomy. And so one of the things on your uh, chairs is this little bookmark, and it has the, a reading plan for uh, the sermons that will be coming up this semester. So it shows you the bigger sections that, uh, that, that I'll, I'll be exploring as we go through these sermons, and then the actual texts that I'll be preaching, and those dates on there are the, the, the Sunday dates uh, with, with the sermon text and title. And that's so you can take that home and read it, read the scriptures before you get here. And so be thinking about it and questions you have, and then hopefully the sermon will help you. And, uh, and, and then some of you will be part of small groups that further explore that and, and talk about it. And so we're hoping that uh, Deuteronomy will be used of God mightily to, to change and transform our lives. So last week we, we began to look at uh, Moses' life, and the way that I, I framed uh, these stories was that we were looking at Moses' spiritual awakening. And what a spiritual awakening is, is going from having no relationship with God to having a living relationship with God. And this is what happens to Moses. Uh, when Moses meets God at the burning bush, he goes from having no relationship with God to having a relationship with God. And we said last week a couple of things that, that Moses becomes aware of that every human being has to become aware of in order to have a spiritual awakening is the nature of God and the nature of themselves. These two things are uh, what are sometimes called a precondition uh, to understand our need for a rescue from God. And so Moses at the burning bush comes to understand that God is holy. It's not the only thing that he comes to understand, but it's one of the things we hear God say to him at the burning bush in, back in chapter 3 that he should take his shoes off because he's on holy ground. And so Moses understands, well, God is holy, he's separate, he's other, he's perfect, and I'm not. I'm a sinner, I'm separate. And again, those two things, have to, to have to believe those things to then be ready for the awakening. And what happens in the awakening is that we have a rescue, right? God rescues us. Because we are sinners and we are separated from the life-giving God. And so we can't change that unless we are rescued. And so that's what we want to talk about today is that, that rescue. Uh, the rescue of God's people from Egypt. Because there's a lot of parallels with their re- between their rescue and our rescue. Uh, we have seen a lot of rescues in the news lately. Uh, because of uh, Hurricane Harvey and what's going on in Houston, Texas. I was looking at an article in the New York Times on, online that had a moving picture of all of the emergency requests from Sunday through Wednesday of the storm. And there's like these little red dots that are just popping up on the screen. This is just one, one slice of one day of one neighborhood um, of those dots. And you can see in those dots the, the requests that are being made and uh, just phrases that are in the online requests or on the phone requests. And there are things like, uh, the current is too strong to open the door. Another person says, I have no food or water. Another person says, the water is rising and I'm all alone. Another person says, I've been on the roof since yesterday. Another one says, I'm stuck in my attic. 
Another one says, I'm a mother and eight and a half months pregnant. The number of people, literally 3,000 rescues were made in, in that four-day period. But the number of people that were, were crying out for help is, is this unfathomable. But they had no problem knowing that they needed a rescue. They didn't need any convincing. <laughs> the problem was that there weren't enough resources on the side of the rescue effort to get everybody in a timely way. People were waiting and, and people weren't, weren't able to, to receive an immediate rescue. When we talk about a spiritual rescue, it's the opposite. God has infinite resources for the rescue. He, he's, he's not uh, short of any, any rescue materials in order to get to those that are in need. The problem is we don't know we need a rescue. We have to be convinced that we need a rescue. And so what happens over the 430 years of Israel's experience in Egypt, they go from pretty comfy lifestyle and they're safe and things are good and then uh, they become enslaved and, and things are not so good and things get worse and worse and worse to the point where it crescendos to this cry out to God, will you rescue me? And so they know at that point that they need a rescue from God. And God hears their cry. God sends an unlikely rescuer named Moses. Uh, there, there were lots of unlikely rescuers uh, in, uh, in, in Houston last week. Uh, one of them is this guy, uh, Ben Theriot. He's a part of this group of guys from Louisiana that call themselves the Cajun Navy. And they, some of them were rescued in uh, Katrina, the disaster 10 years ago. And after that, after experiencing that, they decided we're going to go to other disaster areas and we're going to rescue people. And so a number of these guys from Louisiana, this, he, he's a, like an engineer at an engineering firm in Baton Rouge and just dropped everything. And he, you know, they show up with their, their boats and uh, their duck waders up to here and they're ready and made hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of, of rescues. What, one of the funniest ones uh, was this, this guy that was working at uh, Chick-fil-A, and the, the phone was ringing off the hook, and they weren't answering it. The store was closed, and he just happened to pick up the phone. He thought he recognized the number, and this person's like, can I have two chicken sandwiches and a rescue? And he's like, uh, okay, I'm going to, what's your address? And calls a friend who has a jet ski. They go out, they get this older couple, and they bring them back, and they, and they rescue them. Uh, a very unlikely uh, rescue kind of scenario. And Moses, he's an unlikely rescuer. Right? He, he's out there in the wilderness. Uh, he is without much money. He doesn't have any power. Um, he hardly even knows God. He himself has just come to know God. And God sends this little nomadic sheep herder into the most powerful nation of the world with the most powerful military fighting force in the world to demand that he release the people of God. And of course, Pharaoh, not interested in complying with that request. Uh, Moses knows this. God has let him know that's not going to work the first time and that there's going to be a series of plagues that occurs. And that is what, that is what happens. Um, 
what happens is in these plagues, they, they start as inconveniences, um, sort of scary to the literal loss of human life. Starts off, the, the River Nile turns to blood. Uh, then frogs come out of the River Nile. Then gnats and flies start to, 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 to uh, proliferate around these uh, frogs. So at, at this point, it's just inconvenient, it's scary, uh, it's stinky. Uh, but then there's the death of livestock. So then you start to see some things die other than, than frogs. Uh, and it gets, a, it gets a little bit more of, of a loss of life. Then boils. This is actually moving on to the bodies of human beings. So that ramps it up. Just one more level. Then you have uh, hail. And hail is destroying crops and animals and humans. Although Moses gives people the heads up get out of, the, of harm's way, and many of the Egyptians do get their people out of harm's way uh, before the, the, the plague of the hail. Uh, then locusts. Um, locusts are just kind of good to go in and just clean up whatever's left. And they come in and they just wipe out everything else agriculturally that they have left. Uh, then darkness. And again, darkness is not something that's killing anyone, but psychologically it's pretty scary moment when the sun completely goes dark. None of this convinces Pharaoh that he should release the people. I mean, there's some moments there where he's like, you can go, and then, oh, you can't go, and you can go, and you can't go. But really, overall, he's not convinced. We know from scriptures that that's partly because his heart is hardened. He's spiritually dead. He has no relationship with God. And so he's not responding to the way that God's revealing himself to Pharaoh over and over and over and over, both through the miraculous but also through the word of God that's coming from Moses. But also because he's making a lot of money and his country's making a lot of money because of these two million slaves that he has at his disposal. Not unlike our own country, when we had slaves here in the U.S., and yes, it was about racism and discrimination, but it was about making money. And so... That economy was built. Both the plantation owners in the south and the textile uh, factories in the north were all making money off of people that were enslaved. And Pharaoh's doing the same thing. And so he doesn't, he doesn't want to let go of that. And he holds on for dear life until the 10th plague. And this is what we just read about. So let's look again at Exodus 12. Uh, go ahead and look in your Bibles. There's Bibles on the floor there if you want to grab those or on your phone or maybe you brought your Bible. Exodus 12, verse 29. You just heard this read. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the, Pharaoh, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. Pharaoh rose up in the night, and he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. And he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you've said. Take your flocks, your herds, as you've said. Be gone, and bless me also. So Pharaoh gets fairly motivated at this point. So much so, he gets up in the middle of the night, calls for, for Moses and Aaron to come in, and he's like, get out, get out. You, you, you're free to go. Whatever it is you want, you just 
you take it. And uh, it's in part because of the, the loss of life, but not just the loss of any life, the loss of the firstborn sons of all these families, which in their society, in the ancient world, uh, the, the firstborn son represented their heritage, their legacy, their family honor being carried on to the next generation. And so for, for this sort of, uh, this very honored person in each of these families to go down was, was a huge deal. But not just that, Pharaoh's own son was killed that night. And Pharaoh was thought to be a god himself, that he was divine, which mean, meant, of course, his firstborn son was also divine. And here, God had shown his power over the mighty divine Pharaoh and his son. Literally, all of these plagues somehow correspond with an Egyptian deity. He's showing the people of Egypt and the people of Israel that he has power over any of those gods and goddesses in the pantheon of the Egyptians. Take, for instance, the Nile, right? Nile turns to blood. The Nile was thought to be a god, the, the darkness of the sun. The sun was thought to be a god, and the God of Israel is showing the Egyptians and the Israelites, I am God. I am the one true God. And so this motivates Pharaoh to release them, and uh, partly because he's not so sure his people is even going to exist, right? It says in verse 33, the Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up and their cloaks on their shoulders, and the people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. So if you were with us last week, this is what God said would happen. He said, I'm going to plunder the Egyptians. He was using the language of war. He was saying, I'm going to go to war against the pantheon of the Egyptians, and I am going to have victory, and I'm going to plunder the Egyptians. And you're going to plunder them too, and you're going to walk out. With, with, with value, with, with material wealth. And it's exactly what happens. Now, the Israelites couldn't have even imagined that that was what was going to go down or how it was going to go down, that God would do all the fighting for them and then they would merely have to take the plunder from God's victory. So verse 37, they, they journey out of Egypt from Ramesses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. I know, I know when you hear that, you think, well, why do they only count the men and the women don't get counted? And the reason is because they're counting military fighting men. How many soldiers do we have to go to war? Right? If you go to the book of Numbers, you can see they're counting how many people do we have that we are going to go to war with. Uh, verse 38, a mixed multitude also went up with them. That's an interesting phrase there. It lets us know that this was not just the bloodline uh, Jews of, of Abraham, but it was a whole mix of people that were in the, the community of slaves that was there in Egypt that's coming out with God's people to become the nation of Israel. Very much livestock, flocks, herds, and they baked unleavened cakes and dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait nor 
had they prepared any provisions for themselves. They didn't believe God was going to do it. Even though Moses spoke the word of God to them and said, this is what's going to happen. Tenth plague's going to happen. Pharaoh's going to to release us, and we're going to leave this place. Get ready. They just didn't, didn't believe it. They didn't believe it. They didn't think Pharaoh would ever come to a place where he would decide to release the nation of Israel. So they weren't packed. Now, we can be a bit sympathetic with this because they'd been there for 430 years. They weren't slaves that whole time, but they'd been there a long time, generation after generation, experiencing the slavery and oppression that the Pharaoh had placed upon them. But all along, God was at work. God was moving forward His plan of rescue for the people of, of Israel. Uh, just like it was, not, it was hard for them to believe that God was going to do it, God also knew that as time would pass, it would be hard for them to remember what God had done. And so he institutes something called the Passover so that they will remember all that God had done in the nation uh, for the nation of Israel to get them out of Egypt. We read about this in verse 44. Uh, so skip down a little bit, a few verses. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. And then goes on explaining some of the details uh, of that. Uh, so that first night, they're told that they are to take a lamb, to kill the lamb, bleed the lamb, take the blood of the lamb, and put it on the doorpost of, the, of their house. And that if they do that, that God will pass over their house and not cause the death of their firstborn son. Uh, and so it's communicating some things uh, about the nature of God and the nature of human beings. So, so again, uh, that there's this separation because of sin. That the Israelites are just as sinful as the Egyptians. And they are needing a death in the place of their most honored family member, their firstborn son. That he, the one who's going to carry the legacy, the honor of the family, he is worthy of death because of his sin. And that the only way he will be passed over, the only remedy for him on that night was the blood of this lamb. And it, it communicated some realities about the nature of God, the nature of human beings, and the nature of the rescue that God was performing on that night to get them out of Egypt. When Jesus first hit the scene, 1,500 years later, when there had been many, many a Passover meal, many, many a lamb that was slain, uh, Jesus is walking around Galilee, and John the Baptist, who is his sort of opening act and has been preparing Israel for the the Messiah to come, and John sees Jesus, and John makes this uh, comment uh, in John chapter 1, He says, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. In that little verse, John connects the dots between the Passover and who Jesus is. He's he's letting us know that, that there is a plague that is worse than any plague that was delivered onto the Egyptians. The plague of sin and the consequences that come from sin, this separation from a holy God, resulting in a separation from life itself. And that we too have one remedy, one rescue 
to get out of that predicament of being spiritually dead and separated from God and back into relationship with God and forgiven of our sin. And that is faith in the Lamb of God, Jesus. Why call Him the Lamb? Again, because He died a death on our behalf. And, and His blood was poured out. And that was a ransom. That was a payment made in order to pay the price needed to free us from the slavery that we were in. And again, we, we oftentimes, as human beings, we're just cruising through life, and we know life's bad, and we know that there's hard things happening, and we can't quite put our finger on it, and maybe we're dealing with some internal depression, or there's, there's this stuff that's going on, and we're like, why is my life such a mess, and why am I such a mess? And we don't know we're in need of a rescue. And in fact, that rescue is Jesus Christ. The Lamb of God. And so there's, there comes this moment, if, if you are a Christian or you're becoming one today perhaps, where, where you reach out and say, I need help. I'm on top of my roof. The water's rising. I'm in my attic. I've tried everything I know to do. There is no other rescue for me. Jesus, will you rescue me? And in, in that moment, you become a Christian. <laughs> As you reach out for His rescue, he, he comes and He comes quickly with forgiveness and healing and transformation and his, literally His Spirit comes to dwell inside of you. And that has come at a horrible price. Right? The price of God's own Son. There was price being paid for the rescue of people in Houston. Uh, this next picture is of a mom and her daughter. It's uh, Jordan Grace and her mom, Colette. And Colette saw the rising waters. She, she gathered up Jordan Grace and got her in the car, and they were trying to cross some water. The water was coming into the car, and she realized that they were not going to make it, so she got Jordan out of the car. She found some kind of an object that was stationary, and she grasp it and she got Jordan on her back and she just held on for dear life and literally was, was praying out to God and, and uh, we know that because Jordan told the rescuers that that is indeed what she was doing but when they got there Colette was dead but Jordan Grace was alive and well and that mom had poured out her life so that her daughter could live now when we understand our own salvation we see God the Father giving his son to die so that we might live. It, it boggles the mind that the, the love of God, right? When you, this verse, you, you, a lot of you know this verse, John 3, 16, right? For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. We're perishing. We're perishing without the salvation given to us by the divine Son of God who died in our place. So put your faith in the Lamb, in the Lamb. For some of you, that, that may be this morning. This is a, you're, 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 it's clicking for you in this moment. You're like, oh, that's what it means to be a Christian. And I, again, I encourage you to, to, to cry out to Him for a rescue this morning. Anyone who's a Christian in here knows exactly what I'm talking about. A moment or a season in life where you finally come to the end of your rope, you've tied a, a knot on the end of it, the knot starts to unravel, and you're like, help, rescue me. 
And Jesus is, again, has infinite resources. He's not overwhelmed with the, the, the request for rescue. He has infinite resources. The Apostle Paul calls it the unsearchable riches of Christ. There's an abundance of grace and mercy that He has at His disposal to rescue us. And again, has come at a high cost to Him. We remember that rescue when we come to this table. The context of when Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper is a Passover meal. He's celebrating the Passover, uh, a Passover that had been celebrated for 1,500 years up to that moment. Many a lamb had been slain and bled, and many a meal had been shared, a many of a remembrance of the great rescue that God had made. And so in that moment of that Passover, Jesus takes bread and He blesses it, gives thanks for it, he, he breaks it. Everything else at that point seems like it's going like a normal Passover Seder. And then he says to his disciples, this is my body. And I'm sure the, 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 the room got really quiet at that moment. And they're thinking, what? And he goes on to say, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he takes the cup, a cup that, uh, again, it was part of the typical Passover Seder experience, and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. And he lets them know that Passover that they'd been remembering throughout the ages was actually pointing forward to a much more important Passover. And that was the passing over of the wrath of God over those who are sinners who are willing to trust in the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. And so now when we come to this table, we're, we're remembering. We're kicking back to, 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 to think about uh, remem and remember the gospel, what Christ has done for us, because he knows just like it was hard for, the, for Israel to continue to remember the significance of the Exodus, it's easy for Christians to kind of come, well, I'm moving on. I mean, I'm a Christian now, and I know the gospel thing, but I'm going to move on to whatever's, whatever's next. And God's like, no, 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 no. I want you to remember and remember and remember and remember. And so we look back at the Passover, our Passover, because we were under a plague and we needed a Passover, except the plague that we were under was much greater than anything delivered on the Egyptians. And the cost paid in our Passover, more infinite, more amazing than any cost that was paid on that night of the Exodus. So those of you that have received that Passover that Christ has offered you, our response is worship, to worship the Lamb. This is, in fact, what we're going to be doing into eternity. Uh, if you've ever made it to the last book of the Bible, Revelation, uh, you see in, in uh, Revelation chapter 7, John, the, the, the writer of Revelation, he's having a vision of eternity, and he sees this in the, verse 9. He says, After this, <clears throat> I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, 
Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And so all those nations and tribes and tongues and peoples, all together in community, that that community that we are all longing for, and what's at the center of that community is God. And God revealing Himself, God the Father and God the Son, the Lamb. The Lamb whose, whose life was given so that we could be back in relationship with God the Father, back in relationship with one another in the community known as the church. And the church is going to go on throughout eternity. We're going to be worshiping together, yes, today, but we're going to be worshiping together throughout eternity. And so this is an opportunity for us as we take the bread and the cup in a minute to join together and to worship the Lamb and to remember this price that was paid so that we could be spiritually awake. Let's pray. God, I do, I do pray that there would be some calls out from this place for rescue. Every week, folks are coming in. They're, they're in investigating the Christian faith. They're considering who you are, what your nature is, and what you say about humans and what our need is for rescue, Lord. So God, would you help give grace to those that are crying out to you even in this moment, asking for your forgiveness, asking for new life. And Lord, would you meet them in that? Meet them and and give them that forgiveness and that new life that you've promised through your grace given to us at the cross. Lord, for those of us who are your followers and have experienced that rescue moment, God, that we would remember what you've done for us, our own exodus, our own plague that you have rescued us from, our own Passover that's been given to us by grace through faith. And may it motivate us and inspire us and move us to worship, to worship you, not just some nebulous God out there, but the God who's revealed himself in Christ, but not only that, who's died on the cross for our sins and risen on the third day. So God, give us, give us the time here where we take the cup and we take the bread and we worship you, the one true God. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.